Oh God, it is because Jesus lives that we are here. We couldn't go on, not another day. For if Christ were not risen, then our faith is in vain. And of all people on earth, we would be the most miserable. But Holy Father, He lives. Your resurrection power of the eternal God has emptied that tomb. And because it is empty, we go on and we shall face tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow until Christ comes. The hope that is ours, we praise you. Set it ablaze anew, deep within us all, this resurrection Sabbath. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. I remember when the story rolled off of the wire services. And every time I recall this story, I'm telling you what, folks, I ask the question, at least to myself, I say, is this, is this a story about us? A story about a Texas gem dealer named Roy Wetstein, who happened to be in Arizona that day, in Tucson, attending a convention of amateur rock hounds. You know those rock hounds who collect the things of earth. And as Roy Wetstein moved up and down the countertops and card tables, he found his way to a little card table belonging to a rock hound from Idaho. On the top of that table was an old dusty Tupperware bowl and someone had affixed a piece of masking tape on the side, kind of a you-pick for $15. Any rock, you can have it, $15. Wetstein stops at this table, the, this professional gem dealer. He puts his experienced fingers into that pile of rocks and begins to massage them and feel them and then he comes across kind of a strange rock, rather potato-shaped, sort of lavender, gray. And he picks it up, and his trained eye watches as he twists it in the air. Several moments go by, and finally he, he brings the stone back down, and he looks into the face of that Idaho rock hound, and he asks, You want $15 for this? Rockhound snaps that stone, put it in his own hand, and looked at it for a while. He said, nope, nope. For you, this rock has been here a long time. You may have it for $10. Wetstein reaches into his wallet, pulls out a wrinkled $10 bill, and walks away with what has been reported to be the world's largest star sapphire in existence. Size of the stone, 1,095 carats. 700 more carats than the previous record holder, the Black Star of Queensland, Australia, found in 1948. $10 stone, estimated value, $2.5 million. <laughs> we should have gone into rock collecting. That's what I'm thinking. We should have done it. I mean, can you believe it? This poor rock hound from Idaho has the treasure of the universe in his Tupperware bowl and he treats it like just another dusty old stone. 
on this resurrection weekend, I want to ask the question again, could it be? Is this a story about us? Is this a story about you? Is it a story about me? Could it be that in our old, battered, Tupperware bowl of dogma and truth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have, for us, it has become just another dusty old stone. Bartered down, a forgotten stone marked down to a few pennies, when in fact it is the very treasure of the universe. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. What has happened to the crown jewel of God? You know what? we got a new generation coming on the scene today. It is no wonder they have written off the mission of the church as nothing more than the boring recitation of dusty old dogma. Should we be surprised when we buried the star sapphire at the bottom of our bowl? It is obvious. The early church, it was not buried at the bottom of their Tupperware bowl. You read the book of Acts, ladies and gentlemen, you have done it. I mean, the book fairly explodes with their confidence in the good news that Christ is risen. I was visiting with a colleague of mine the other day. He'd just been going through the New Testament again. and He was sharing me. He said, you know, I really am under growing conviction that what ignited the church in the beginning, those early Christians, was not a, was not a plethora. It, it, it was just the one compelling passion that they had for the resurrected Christ. I mean, so you think about it. It, it, to, to me, he said, it's inescapable. You read the book of Acts. All they could think about is, is the risen Jesus. They ate Him. They drank Him. They lived Him. They breathed Him. They slept Him. They dreamt Him. They walked Him. They talked Him. They sang Him. They shared. Anybody stop long enough, just, just long enough for me to tell you, they shared Him. Why? Because they had a star sapphire. And I tell you what, when you have a stone that valuable, how do you keep it? I mean, what do you say? I'm not telling you what I got in my pocket. You pull it out every time. Have you seen this? You know what? He didn't have to make his point very, uh, very long and hard. I, I think he made his point well. And I certainly wasn't going to argue with him. But because of a personality quirk I have that refuses to take someone else's word for it, I decided subsequently to go back to the book of Acts. And I went through and I annotated. Every time there was a public witness to the risen Christ in the book of Acts, I'm telling you, it is replete. The book is full. The guy is right. My colleague is right. You think about it. Why, why would the early church be ecstatic over the resurrection of Jesus? Hey, listen, folks. Jot this down. If the tomb is empty today, and I've been to Jerusalem, I've seen both tombs. They are both empty. If that tomb is empty today, then these three truths have to follow. If the tomb is empty, number one, then it is a resounding proof that Jesus is who He claimed to be. He is the Son of God. He has to be the Son of God. There is no question. He is the Son of God. If the tomb is empty today, number two, then it is ringing a ringing pronouncement that Jesus' sacrificial death on Calvary is sufficient to save, get this, the entire human race. If the tomb is empty today, He can save the whole world. And finally, number three, if the tomb is empty today, then it is a reverberating promise that every man, woman, and child on this planet who believes in Him will not perish, but have what? Say it with me. But have everlasting life. I want to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that you have everlasting life in Jesus Christ right now? Do you believe that? Do you? Ah, come on, do you really? Why don't you talk about it? Why, don't you, why, why, you never, why do you not talk about it? Why do I not? Oh, by the way, I found this line much later after visiting with, uh, with this colleague of mine. Corroborates his, his conclusion. I came across... It's a Gary Habermas. 
who, who wrote his doctoral dissertation up here in Lansing, Michigan State University, dissertation on the resurrection. Subsequently, Habermas has written seven books on the resurrection of Jesus. Lee Strobel, in that wonderful latest book of his, what's it called? The Case for Christ, A Journalist's Personal Investigation of the Evidence for Jesus. He interviews Gary Habermas. Habermas makes this point in the interview. Let's put it up on the screen. Take a look at this. This is Habermas uh, speaking now. The resurrection was undoubtedly the central proclamation of the early church from the beginning. The earliest Christians didn't just endorse Jesus' teachings. They were convinced they had seen Him alive after His crucifixion. That's what changed their lives and started the church. Certainly, since this was their centermost conviction, they would have made absolutely sure that it was true. You go running around down the world, He's alive if you don't believe it yourself. By the way, I mean, can we really know that the tomb is empty? Habermas has spent his life... I've got to share this with you. Because Strobel, uh, along the way in introducing Habermas, notes that at a public debate that had been arranged, Gary Habermas, Christian apologist, one of the brilliant apologists, by the way, for the resurrection, was pitted against Antony Flew, one of the leading philosophical atheists in the world. The announced topic of the debate, did Jesus rise from the dead? So here are these two men. They're going at it. Harper and Rowe was so intrigued by that debate, it took the content of the debate. Harper and Rowe is no small little publisher. They produced it, they published it into a book. What they, what they did was, they had this debate back and forth. They brought in five philosophers, not Christians, five philosophers, various colleges and universities. All right, judge them on content. Is the logic clear? Five philosophers, four of those philosophers, when they took the vote, voted. Habermas won on the basis of the evidence. One said it was a draw. And one of the philosophers, let's put this up here, made this, made this confession. I was surprised, shocked might be a more accurate word, to see how weak Flew's own approach was. I was left with this conclusion. Since the case against the resurrection was not stronger than that presented by Anthony Flew, I would think it was time I began to take the resurrection seriously. Not a believing philosopher. Say, I, I need to take this seriously. Now, they brought five other judges in. Not for content now. They wanted to watch argumentation style. Debate coaches. Again, Habermas wins. One of the judges had to, chose to submit this report. And I want, I want you to read this. I conclude that the historical evidence, though flawed, is strong enough to lead reasonable minds to conclude that Christ did indeed rise from the dead. Habermas does end up providing highly probable evidence for the historicity of the resurrection with no plausible naturalistic evidence against it. Habermas, therefore, in my opinion, wins the debate. Well, folks, the point is we're not dealing with some little lightweight here who doesn't know what he's talking about. Do you know what he spent his life studying? Researching the, re the historicity, the reliability of the eyewitness accounts. So Strobel sits down with him and says, I want to know about this. Strobel, by the way, himself, an investigative journalist once with Chicago Tribune, once himself also an atheist, Strobel has become a believer. He sits down with Habermas. He says, tell me about these eyewitness accounts. Do you know that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lists over 500 eyewitnesses to the risen Christ? Strobel then writes, without question, the amount of testimony and corroboration of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances is staggering. And I says, let's put it in perspective. He says, let's do this, Strobel says. If you took all those eyewitnesses and you gave them all 15 minutes each, okay, sit up here in the witness stand, you get 15 minutes, 15, 15, 15. If you line them up and you start hearing their testimony at breakfast on Monday and you go straight with no breaks through the night, you will not finish that list of witnesses until dinner on Friday evening. 
Wow, now let's put Strobel's words up there. After listening to 129 straight hours of eyewitness testimony, who could possibly walk away unconvinced? Having been a legal affairs journalist who has covered some scores of trials, both criminal and civil, I had to agree with the assessment of Sir Edward Clark, a British High Court judge who conducted a thorough legal analysis of the first Easter day. Now watch what Clark says. The British judge. To me, he writes, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. As a lawyer, I accept the gospel evidence unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts that they were able to substantiate. End quote. Hey, that's pretty impressive. We're not dealing here with just, you know, with, 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 uh, with, with grade school and kindergarten. We're dealing with professional thinkers. So my friend, my colleague, was absolutely right. That was his point. The resurrection of Christ was singularly the flaming passion of early Christians. He was their star sapphire. I'm telling you, no question. He was their star sapphire. And how am I going to argue with this colleague? I mean, he's right. But then, and this is, this is what's embarrassing. Then he looks at me. He says, okay, Dwight. Having established that, he asked me this question. How would you answer him? He said, if that's true about the early church, passionate for the risen Christ, then why is it that today we don't talk more about the risen Jesus in our own conversations? When's the last time you talked about the risen Christ, huh? We do it once a year at Easter. Hallelujah. We celebrate Easter. Every funeral, yes, every funeral. But in the interim, do you talk to anybody? Do you share with anybody your conviction that Christ is alive and He's risen? Where is the risen Christ in the conversation of this parish? Open your Bible, please, to a one-line Easter message for this new millennium. Open your Bible. You know, we called it here looking for a silver bullet in a black hole. Probably should have been entitled looking for the star sapphire in an empty tomb. Open to the epistle of the Romans. I read this line just a moment ago. We want to turn to it now. Romans chapter 10. I'm in the New Revised Standard Version. Just one line. That's all it is. Our Easter message today. One line long. Romans chapter 10. Glad you're finding in whatever translation you've brought today. Let that translation come alive with the living Word, the living Christ. One line. This is Romans chapter 10. This is verse 9. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Ladies and gentlemen, how could God's great resurrection gift of salvation possibly be put any simpler? How could it be any simpler? Number one, confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. Number two, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And number three, you will be saved. No ifs, no ands, no buts. You will be saved. Just like that. How could it be possibly any simpler than that bottom line? Number one, confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. Number two, believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And number three, you will be saved. The end. Do you really believe that text? Come on, come on, come on, come on. Do you really? Do you really think salvation is that simple? Huh. Be honest. If it is really that simple, why is it in the springtime of our new millennial mission? 
Why is it? Oh, maybe I'm only talking about myself. Maybe you don't, you don't experience this, but I'll confess. There is that temptation. It is subtle temptation, but it is strong at times to wave off the early Christian witness and mission. It's too simplistic. It's too simple. They didn't know enough back then. I mean, they're so new, they're so young, they're so inexperienced, so early in theological development. How can we expect them to articulate the kind of systematic theology we have today? It can't be that simple anymore. Back then, oh sure, back then, all you needed was Jesus. I mean, it was radical. Talk about Jesus with Judaism and paganism. Wow, He's alive? Whoa. It was radical back then, but now, hey, you can't do it now. Back then, oh wow. Paul could exclaim, I have determined to know nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, the word is nothing. I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. That was back then, but not today. You've got to know a whole lot more than that. Back then, the same Paul could exclaim, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Philippians 3.10. You can't get by with knowing that little today. You've got to know a lot. I mean, the church back then, Colossians 3.11, could confess, Christ is all and in all. But not the church today. We've got to have so much more. That was back then, and this is now. I tell you what, folks, I, I, I may be just wrestling with my own heart here. But I have to ask you, is the resurrected Christ really enough anymore? I mean, we've, we've taken their little tent of truth and we've turned it into a tower of teachings. It seems... That all they had to talk about back then was Jesus, but we've got to tell them the whole nine yards or 27 fundamentals. Now, I'm being very, very blunt with you. Is the resurrected Christ enough anymore? Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Has early Christianity's shiny silver bullet of the resurrected Jesus become today a nuclear warhead missile of complex truth? I mean, back then, it's all it took. Just one statement, one confession. But today, you've got to roll that missile out and crank it and get the computers adjusted. And by the time we got it, the, the target's moved. You know, what a, you, know, you know what a silver bullet is? No, you don't, because I sat down yesterday with Art Martins, a senior here at the University School of Business. He's graduating. He's up in the booth right now running the PowerPoint. He produces this. And Art said, you know, do I, do I just... What is a silver bullet? I'm realizing nobody knows what a silver bullet is. Well, a silver bullet is, 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 is a proven formula for sure success. The winning strategy. Just the, if you could have just one bullet, boom, that would do it. One, one message and you could save the world. Just one. The silver bullet. They used to have a silver bullet. We got a missile. Now, Art was telling me as we got into this conversation yesterday, he said, hey, Dwight, you know what? He's into network marketing because he's from the school of business. They've got to talk to these big things. Network marketing. You know what he told me? Listen to this. The simpler the message, the faster the dissemination. you got one message, one book. Boom! But if you begin to cloak and cover that message with more and more and more, I'm telling you, that's why it takes forever to get the word out. The simpler the message. Thank you, Art Martin. School of Business. The simpler the message, the faster the dissemination. What's the problem with us? 
as it, what has happened to the simplicity of the truth as it is in Jesus? Have we so complicated our mission that not even the professionals are able to fulfill it anymore? They run here, they run there, just but they're out of breath, they're dying, then the next one comes. Oh, by the way, Art Martin says, hey, it's like when you find a good restaurant. You know, you, you go to a place and say, boy, this was great food. What do you do with people? Do you tell them everything about the restaurant? No, you don't. He said, if you're smart and you want to get your friend to go to that restaurant, you just tell the, the, the shining core of it. You say, man, the food is great. Now, they'll take that one testimony. They will go to the restaurant and discover not only is the food great, but it has a wonderful layout on the menu, the decor, the aura, the milieu. Oh, whoo! And the waitress, Art threw this in, and the waitresses are just perfect. That's a college student thinking. You see, you don't have to tell them about the waitresses. You don't tell them about the menu. You don't tell them about the aura. You don't tell them about the, the setting. You just say, the food is great. They take that invitation, they go and find out, wow, not only is the food great, it is everything else as well. Maybe that silver bullet needs to be loaded again into the sixth shooter of the third millennium. Tell them about Jesus. Just, just, just tell them about Jesus. Don't give them the nine yards and 27 fundamentals. Just tell them about Jesus. Let them go to Jesus and find out the menu is wild and great. Just take them to Jesus. You see, there's a danger, ladies and gentlemen, that we are so focused, we have so focused our mission on the dissemination of so broad a body of teachings, the theologians call it corpus of truth. We've got this big corpse, this big body. That's what it is. That's where you get the word. We get this big body of truth. We're so focused on it that even we ourselves have become befuddled and confused over how much of all of this are we supposed to share before a person can come to know the Savior and have eternal life. Well, how many of this, how many of these do I need to go through? Well, it's no wonder I'm not going to witness anymore, man. I have to have all that. That's what's happened in the mission. It has become so complex we can't get it out. Simplify the message and you will accelerate the dissemination. Doesn't it follow if we're not sure how much to share publicly? How in the world am I supposed to know how much I'm supposed to share privately with my neighbors and friends and colleagues? You don't know how am I supposed to know? Ah, oh, come on, Pastor. You see, you're, you're just creating a, a straw man here, paper tiger. We've got the full truth, and it's got to be fully shared. This Easter, I agree with you intellectually. I must tell you that in my heart, I wonder. In my heart of hearts, I wonder sometimes if we have become like the Jews of Jeremiah's Jerusalem. Take a look at this. This is, this is, where, where is this? Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. God is speaking. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings. Let me dwell with you. Would you just get to know me? Let me dwell with you in this place. Now notice this. Next verse. Do not trust in these deceptive. The key word, deceptive. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. You know what, folks? They blew their mission by hiding behind the complex of their temple. How tragic it would be were we to blow our mission by hiding behind the complex of our truth. Because it is not a far cry from the temple, the temple, the temple, to the truth, the truth, the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
I'm telling you, when the resurrected Christ met them that post-resurrection little seaside Galilee moment, and they watch him cook the fish and the bread, and he his hand his hand brushes against Peter's and John's sitting by that early morning breakfast. When the hand brushes, they know their hearts just leap. Wow, I just got touched by God Himself. There's no complexity here. He was dead, but now He is alive forevermore. Hallelujah. I'm telling you. I, Jesus said, Pastor Esther prayed this in her prayer, I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all peoples to Me. No wonder the Easter truth about salvation reads the way it does. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If there's anybody here today that has not confessed Jesus is Lord, say, what's that mean? It means you say, you're the leader. I'll follow. Wherever you go. You say something in here, I'll follow if there's anybody here today who has not accepted Jesus as Lord, if there's anybody here who has yet to embrace the confession, I believe God raised Him from the dead, I'm telling you, my friend, you are two statements. You are, count them, one, two, two statements away from eternal life. Two. Confess with your lips. I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever you lead. Confess with your heart. I believe you were raised by God from the tomb. You are two statements away from eternal life. Two. How could God have made it any simpler? God could not have made this offer more enticing or more simple. Two statements away. If you're here today, my friend, you're watching on television right now, I'm telling you what, don't put it, you can just say it. You don't need a choir singing. You don't need the bells ringing. You can say, I accept you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior of my life. I believe you rose from the dead and if that tomb is empty, you have to be able to save me. You are the Savior of this world. I accept you as my leader, my follower. I'm telling you what, folks, that's all. It's two, two sentences away from eternal life. You can have it right now. I'm not going to give an altar call. You can have it right there in the pew, right now. You've got to say it again tomorrow morning. Say it again on Monday morning. Say it again on Tuesday morning. Believe it. You have it. You may trust Him for the rest of your life. No wonder... The early Christian church was set ablaze with the very thought of Jesus' resurrection. I want to say, ladies and gentlemen, the longer I live, the more convinced I become that the only silver bullet we have left is the only one there ever was. Lauren Isley, an anthropologist, a naturalist and an author. Many of you know Isley. An atheist, by the way, all through his life. Yet he described an unforgettable moment once that tells the truth. This atheist tells the truth about the resurrection. I would like to end with this to lead us into that majestic final hymn we're going to sing. Listen to this. I'm going to read it. These are, this is from Lauren Isley. The story gets set up this way. He's on an expedition. He's, he's trapping live birds and live reptiles for a zoo. He's a naturalist. He's out in an abandoned uh, forest somewhere here in the United States. And he comes across a cabin, a beat-down old cabin. Nobody's lived in this cabin for years. And he can tell by the holes up here in the rafters that birds very apparently have gone into that cabin. And if he can go in there, he can capture live birds to take with him. 
And his plan is to have a flashlight, go up a ladder, then choom, turn the flashlight on, stun them by the light, grab them, put them in the bag, and he's got it. So now, we pick it up with Isley riding. He climbs up to the shelf. He's head and arms over the shelf. I snapped on the flash, and sure enough, there was a great beating and feathers flying. But instead of my having them, they, or rather he, had me. He had my hand, that is, and for a small hawk, not much bigger than my fist, he was doing all right. I heard him give one short metallic cry when the light went on, and my hand descend, descended on the bird beside him. After that, he was busy with his claws, and his beak sunk into my thumb. He was a sparrow hawk and a fine young male in the prime of life. I was sorry not to catch the pair of them, but as I dripped blood and folded his wings carefully, holding him by the back so that he wouldn't strike again, I had to admit, the two of them might have been more than I could have handled under the circumstances. The little fella had saved his mate by diverting me, and that was that. He was born to it and made no outcry now, resting in my hand hopelessly, but peering toward me in the shadows behind the lamp with a fierce, almost indifferent glance. He neither gave nor expected mercy, and something out of the high air passed from him to me, stirring a faint embarrassment. Isley gets the bird, puts it in a small box for the night. Next morning, he's going to take the box out. He wants to construct a cage. He puts it out on the grass. He prepares to make the cage. He looks up into the deep blue sky. Where is that mate? Is she anywhere up there? Nope, she obviously has long gone for good. On impulse now, he reaches into the box and he takes out the male sparrowhawk. He goes on now. He lay limp in my grasp. And I can feel his heart pound under the feathers. But he only looked beyond me and up. I saw him look, that last look, away beyond me into a sky so full of light that I could not follow his gaze. I suppose I must have had an idea then of what I was going to do. But I never let it come into my consciousness. I just reached over and laid the hawk on the grass. He lay there a long minute without hope, unmoving his eyes still fixed on that blue vault above him. It must have been that he was already so far away in heart that he never felt the release from my hand. He never even stood. He just lay with his breast against the grass. In the next second after that long minute, he was gone. Like a flicker of light, he had vanished with my eyes full on him, but without actually seeing even a throbbing of a wing beat. He was gone straight into that towering emptiness of light and crystal that my eyes could scarcely bear to penetrate. For another long moment, there was silence. I could not see him. The light was too intense. Then from far up somewhere, a cry came ringing down. I was young then and had seen little of the world. But when I heard that cry, my heart turned over. It was not the cry of the hawk I had captured. For by shifting my position against the sun, I was now seeing further up, straight out of the sun's eye, where she must have been soaring restlessly above us for untold hours, hurdle his mate. I saw them both now. He was rising to meet her. And from the far up, ringing from peak to peak of the summits over us, came a cry of such unutterable and ecstatic joy that it sounds down across the years and tingles among the cups on my quiet breakfast table. So are we now where Christ has led, 
following our exalted head. Made like Him, like Him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.